Welcome to Money Isn't Scary, a podcast for women to explore our fears around money and inspire each other to be financially empowered. I'm Megan Dwyer, and I'm making it my personal mission to remove the taboo around money and help women rewrite their stories so they can stop staying small and begin to live life on their terms. In this show, we get real and uncomfortable as we unpack our beliefs, thoughts, and behaviors that aren't serving us anymore. I can't wait for you to join me on this journey. So let's dive in. Hi, you guys. Welcome to another episode of the Money Isn't Scary podcast. Today on the show, I'm sharing my conversation with Bree Brown, founder of Modern Manifestation. I feel like the term manifestation is a very big buzzword these days. And because it's used so often, it can be confusing. Bree sees manifestation as the way our thoughts, emotions, and behaviors dictate our ability to create something. If you think this is a very woo-woo concept, it's not. And in our conversation, you can see how Bree has a very down-to-earth approach working with the everyday modern woman. Okay, so who is Bree? Bree Brown is a manifestation and mindset coach for aspiring women entrepreneurs. As a manifestation expert, she helps women gain complete autonomy and feel empowered to manifest a career that aligns with their core values on an ambitious and spiritual level. In our conversation, we talk about manifestation, so what it is and how it actually works, money mindset and the benefits of moving from scarcity to abundance, perfectionism, which is a really big one for me, and some tools that we can use to move through it, like fear-based planning and time blocking. And also the importance of stepping into the being instead of the doing. You guys can follow Brie at Modern Manifestation on Instagram and Facebook. And you can check out her website, themodernmanifestation.com, which links her podcast, blog, and more details on how you guys can work with her. All right, everyone. I hope you all enjoy. Here we go. Hi, Brie. Welcome to the Money Isn't Scary podcast. Thank you so much for being here. I'm super excited for our conversation today. Of course. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for hosting me. Thank you. So I want to start by having you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and your mission in the world. Sure. So my name is Bree Brown, and my mission in the world is really about women empowerment and helping them own their own autonomy, which I know you and I have a lot of similar interests in. I'm also the founder of Modern Manifestation, which is a podcast, and then it's also where I coach women in manifestation and mindset in order to help them cultivate that autonomy for themselves. And then in addition to that, I'm also a woman in a male-dominated industry. I'm in commercial brokerage for office leasing specifically. So all of those things, and I think a lot of the lessons that I bring into Modern Manifestation came from my work in the corporate world and the things that I learned and really bringing a lot of that into my coaching business and helping women gain their own wealth in their lives. Uh, Yeah, I think that's something that we have in common that also being in the financial services world myself, it's a very, you know, being a female in a very male dominated industry can be a challenge. And I think it it draws a lot of us to start to think more about women's empowerment and how we can not only lift ourselves up, but others too. So I love it. I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more about how you became a mindset and manifestation coach and, and what does that actually mean for those listening who may not know? 
Sure, sure. Well, let me start with that manifestation component because I know that everyone, it, you know, people, I friends of mine included, will be like, wait, hold on. What is manifestation? I saw The yeah. Secret on Netflix years ago, and that's sort of my idea of what this is. And really the way I think about manifestation is that it's almost synonymous with mindset in a lot of ways. And your thoughts and your beliefs create your emotions, which then dictate your behaviors. And I think all of those create your identity and who you are as a person. And all of those things correlating together really determine what you're manifesting because your identity is going to determine the habits that you have, how you go about your the, the your day, who you're interacting with, what opportunities you accept, what ideas you might actually pursue, all of that is intercorrelated and you're really manifesting who you are as a person. And so if you're able to really get into that identity component and figure out, well, who am I at my core? Do I feel confident? Do I feel that I'm able to do these things? So dealing with that imposter syndrome and really getting behind some of those ideas of who you actually want to become and then working on the mindset that gets you there. So that's sort of the long-winded way of how I view manifestation is sure there could be the spiritual woo-woo side of it if that's your jam. It could also be a little bit more mindset centric as well if that's more of what you're looking looking for. So that's how I view that particular topic. And I'm not going to spend an hour talking about exactly how I got really passionate about this, but mm-hmm. a couple little bullet points. The women in my family didn't have autonomy financially. They didn't have the ability to make decisions for themselves and the family because they weren't the breadwinners. So I grew up seeing that and seeing the women in my family being emotionally impacted by their inability to make decisions for the family also because they weren't the breadwinners. And so I told myself from a very young age, I was like, I'm going to be a successful woman. I'm going to make a lot of money. I have to get out of this and I have to end this family dynamic that keeps happening for the women in our family. And so I've just always had that mindset. And it's it's funny because I talk about manifestation now and I didn't even realize that back then I was manifesting, trying to to getting into a career and cultivating this wealth for myself in that I was doing all the things to create that identity for myself. So I got into this male dominated industry and I just really worked on all of the things that we come against as women, you know, the perfectionism mindset and how that came into play when I was in sales and I was commission based. And I really struggled for the first two years to really break that 6K or that six-figure mark because I had all of these things in my mind keeping me back and telling me why I didn't deserve to be there. And eventually, I was able to work through a lot of that and finally break over that six-figure mark. And then as the years went on, I started, you know, then multi multiple six figures and then half half of a million and then it was just like okay now i'm able to see the results of my work and my mindset coming to fruition in my actual career and i had a woman that really helped me do this in my career and she was a mentor for me who really helped me through a lot of this mindset stuff she also gave me my opportunity in the industry and she was someone that really paved the way since the 80s to help someone in my position. She was close to retirement. So she really helped pull me up the ladder with her. So she really inspired me. And one of the things she said before she retired was do whatever you can to help other women amass the same sort of success. And that just resonated so hard with me. And I was like, absolutely. Like if I can do this for other women, what better way to end gender inequality if, if that's something that I'm really passionate about. And having seen my mom and my grandma go through their situations with their spouses. It was absolutely something that resonated. So after a few years of having my own success in the industry, I really leaned into that women empowerment, that mindset, really got more into manifestation and tried to 
as I worked on these things, figured out how to implement it and help others do the same. And then eventually had this podcast as well as the coaching business that was really born out of it. And that's really what my I'm, I'm passionate about now is helping women have the same sort of success, because I do see that as being such an instrumental way for us to really make a lot of change in the dynamic of between men and women and us having more autonomy. Yeah, it's so interesting. I agree. I also came from, and so many of us in our generation are sort of changing the the cycles, right? We're, We're at that point where we're so frustrated with the way that things work, which we see from our parents' generation, our grandparents' generation, and we are doing our darndest to, to not let that continue because we're Mm -hmm. so, we see, we see how wrong for better, for lack of a better word that is, and how it's, I guess, struggled and how, how so many people who have been brought up in those environments have struggled and we want to make change. And so I love that. I, I think that I'm in a similar position to you where I am, I really see, I see it from the lens of money and how healing our relationship and all of that stuff that you just talked about, we'll get into it in a little, a little bit more about mindset and, and healing those, those things that challenge us like perfectionism and and self-doubt and all the the thought inner thoughts and beliefs, how important that is in order to continue making change, the change that we want to see in the world. So I think it's really cool. And we are certainly on the same page when it comes to our missions in the world and empowering the the females and the next generation. I would love to hear your personal journey with money. And I know that it can be certainly a challenge as you start to build a business and become an entrepreneur and you also are juggling your, your regular job as well. So I'd love to hear how that has shifted for you over the years and, and what that looked like for you, what, I guess, what your mindset looked like before around money and what it looks like now. Yeah, absolutely. So whenever I was in my younger, more formative years, let's just call it like, you know, late high school, going into college, those sort of times, uh, still very obviously integrated with the parent finances that a lot of us are. And I'd seen my parents have the relationship where the dad or my dad did all of the finances. Mom didn't really, wasn't privy to much of it. And I very much had a scarcity mindset that came from my dad, who's extremely frugal. Um, And so I went from having a mindset going into college about how you were how money was perceived, I guess. So when you talked about healing a second ago, when you're talking about healing the mindset, things like that, I think another huge part of that, that I really had to reflect on for myself and that I continue to work on is healing the mindset about what it means to have wealth. Because at that point in my life, I thought that people that had wealth were bad or greedy or lazy even, because I had this idea that if you were extremely wealthy, you didn't have to work for things in life because that was something that my dad would always complain about is, oh, well, if I were just born rich or if I were just born with an inheritance or a trust, then I wouldn't have to be working till the day I died sort of mentality. Yeah. So it was interesting that that was coming up to play. And so whenever I went to college, I was having to pay for my own school. So I was then really put into a position where I was starting to balance my own finances and knew how much was going out every month as opposed to what was coming in. I started selling Cutco knives at that point. I don't know if you've heard of Cutco knives. I was that person with vector marketing that was doing the work. And I actually did end up paying for quite a bit of my college selling knives. And I think that's what really got me onto the whole commission kick was, oh, 
this is commission. I'm making more than my friends who are lifeguarding. This is awesome. So I use that to, and I really got my first taste of wealth. And that's when I was like, wait a minute, I'm working really hard and I'm having a direct benefit from that financially. So that was really interesting for me to start to break that correlation of people that have wealth are lazy, which sounds so counterintuitive to say, but I guess I had this idea that it was more like more likely to be inherited wealth and that you couldn't just amass wealth for yourself in one generation. Mm-hmm. And then I went to college and, and the people that I went to college with, a lot of them had money. And so then that also created a lot of interesting mindset things for me to work through about what it meant to have friends that came from money. And then that juxtaposition of where I was and what I had to do to make it work versus them. So that was something that I honestly struggled with for probably 10 years, because not only that college life and and dealing with people that came into money, but then as I, I got myself into commercial real estate, that's also a very affluent industry where I didn't have that affluency and that's not something I was used to. And so they were all driving certain cars and wearing certain outfits and labels and brands and, and going on the types of vacations I'd never even dreamed of. And so that sort of exposure was very interesting and pivotal in how I started to view finances. And so talking about that scarcity mindset earlier, I really had this idea that you know money didn't grow on trees. It was going to just completely fizzle away any, any given moment. And I also had a very limited understanding of finances. So I really was just like, oh, well, you have a checking and a savings account and you put, you know, if you can try to put $2,000 a year into savings, you just let it accumulate. That was all I really knew about finances. And so as I started getting into real estate and I started having these conversations with CEOs and CFOs about how they viewed business, and then I started seeing other people around me viewing their personal finances in a very similar way. And they started having almost treating their finances like business operations. And that's when I started taking more ownership over my financial position and saying, okay, well, I clearly don't know this world. I don't have financial literacy. I need to get that if I want to be wealthy. And that's why I think it's so commendable what you do, because so many women, like you said, don't have that naturally. Our dads weren't talking to us really about finances growing up other than you can't have $20. Money doesn't grow on trees. And it's not taught in schools. And that just drives me crazy. Why is it not taught? Why do we exactly. not have basic skills? Basic yeah. life skills taught to us in school. Yeah. So frustrating. <laughs> yeah. It, it's so frustrating. And, you know, it really then falls to what did your parents teach you? And if it's really minimal to nothing. And then the other thing, I know you made a comment before we started recording, and this is something I hear so, 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 so many times from women. Um, especially clients, is that that phrase, I'm just not good at math. And it's funny because that is so tied into perfectionism and protecting that potential. And if I just own that I'm not good at math, then it's not saying something bad about me, or it's not saying that I'm not um, smart in this particular way. And so it's really interesting that that comes into play with finances a lot because people associate numbers in general with math and, you know, finance obviously has so many numbers. And that broad generalized statement keeps a lot of women, I think, from really jumping into their own financial literacy and understanding of their economic position. So long story short, we started getting more wealth coming in. And then that's when, as it was sort of a stepping stone process, you know, I didn't immediately become 
very well versed in finances the very next day. It's been a gradual process where we started learning more about the differences between like Roth IRAs or 401ks and what all that meant. And then over time, we started being like, okay, well, wealthy people are diversified. They have real estate, they have stocks, they have. So, what are we needing to do in order to start diversifying our own assets? And really just owning the title of being your own personal CFO. And I think that when you get to a certain level, you really need to have someone help you that is the expert in that, someone like yourself. So it finally got to a point for my my partner and I where we looked at each other and said, okay, we have pretty much done what we're able to do without this becoming our full-time position as managing finances. So let's bring in an expert that can actually do this for us and teach us as they go. So someone that still holds our hand and, and can talk to us about what it is that's going on. So we have that understanding, but there's also an expert that's actively monitoring it and helping us make financial decisions for our future and making sure that we're safeguarding that and that we're protecting our wealth and allowing it to build. And that's something that's so beautiful is that as you start to build your own wealth, it really becomes exponential at a certain point but you have to get to that place first. And a huge part of that is letting go of that scarcity mindset I had because there was a time in my life where I would never pay for a CPA or an accountant or a wealth manager or anything like that because that was a cost and that was an expense and I could just do it myself. That's the scarcity mindset coming into play. And if I'd continued to live by that forever, I would have never gotten to a place where someone can start taking these decisions out of our, not out of our hands, but helping us with these decisions and making significantly more meaningful decisions for us. And you have to really switch from that scarcity to that abundance mindset where you're saying, yes, this is going to cost me money. And I know that this person's going to do it so much more successfully than I am. And I know that there's going to be a return on investment for that within a reasonable amount of time. And that's something that's so worth my time. And so I think one thing for women that we can really start to do is quantify what our hourly rate is. And when you start to do that, and I'm not just talking about like what it would cost to do that task, but what's the mental burden that carries? What does that cost? What does that task actually cost the materials? And, um, you know, how many times am I having to, to prep for that throughout the week? And, uh, you know, all of the planning and things that go into whatever that particular task is that you're doing for the hour. And then also saying, well, what's my expertise of this task? task. How long have I been doing this task? What are those years worth on top of that? And then figuring out what your cost per hour is and allowing that to help you make decisions sometimes. So I had to figure that out for myself. And early on in our marriage, we had questions like, well, do we have a cleaning lady come and help help out? And that was something that my family had never had in my entire life. And so part of me felt guilty because I was like, well, this is just what I need to do. This is my part of the marriage. I'm the woman. This is what I do. And then I had to separate from that and be like, wait, why though? Like, why is that my role? Does it mean that I'm any less of a wife if I don't do that? And growing up in Texas, that was something, you know, it's kind of in my Southern roots that like, I need to be this good Betty homemaker in addition to this boss babe, I want to be in business. So it's an interesting juxtaposition. And when we had the conversation about the cleaning lady at first, I was just like, well, I can do it myself. Yes. She's $200, but like, I could totally just do that myself. And my husband had to sit me down and be like, yes, but how long is it going to take you to do that? And I was like, oh, it'll only take me like three, four hours. I can clean the whole house. And he's like, okay, we talked about what your cost per hour is. That's actually more expensive for us to have you go do that for four hours versus just off source, you know, have someone else come in and do it for 200. It was just like this mind blowing experience for me. That's really kind of how my mindset around money has really changed over the years. And even now it's, it's funny and, and shocking when I go to dinner with my dad as an example, and 
when we get together, he's just like, well, I just can't believe you spent so much money on a, a nice car. It's just, you know, they, they all get you from point A to B. It makes no sense. Or, well, why did you pay to have roofers come and re-roof the house? I could have come over. We could have done it in the weekend. And, and it's just like this interesting conversation every time you're with him where he just like can't conceptualize the world we live in where we want more time to ourselves and we're building this life where we can afford to offset some of these things. And again, it's just, it's not how I was raised. It's new to me. And there was a lot of guilt associated with it at first. But I think that unfortunately for women, we have a tendency to feel guilt about taking things off our plates because in a way being really busy does provide a lot of that val value and that self-worth for us. It's a very long-winded way to answer your question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was so well said and you touched on so many things. I was making a couple notes along the way. I mean, you just said guilt. It's not only guilt, it's shame and shame is, it goes so deep and that can be really hard. Once you, once you get to that point of shame, not just guilt, like I feel, okay, whatever. But when you feel like there's something inherently wrong with you, then that's when you know that it's, I mean, if you have the self-awareness to get to that point, then that's where you know that there needs to be a serious amount of healing. Yeah. I mean, I totally agree. I am going through something right now where I'm, I'm struggling. I need, I've got two little boys, a five-year-old and a three-year-old and I'm trying to work from home. I have to pick them up from school, but after I pick them up from, from their daycare, I, I still have to work and my husband doesn't get home till a little bit later and I don't want to just throw them in front of the TV. And so I'm having this, a hard time wrapping my head around paying for somebody to help out because in my mind, I'm like, well, why do I need to spend the money on that? They're, they'll be fine. I can just throw them in front of the TV for an hour or something until I finish, but I don't feel good about doing that. And so I get where that I'm kind of where you were (laughs) now with the mindset thing. I mean, it definitely comes from a place of scarcity and it's like, do I, I think what is so important there is that you need to, you need to really think about what you spend your money on. And is that in alignment with your values? Is that in alignment Mm -hmm. with who you are and what you want? So yes, I prioritize, for me, family is really important and I'm prioritizing my kids and work is also really important. So I'm, I'm spending money on childcare so that I have the ability to get my work done. And I just need, it's hard convincing yourself of that because again, it's these stories. Like I should be able to do this. I should be able to do both. Why can't I? And then feeling this guilt and or shame, which it gets to that level sometimes that I can't. And so I totally understand where you're coming from. And I'm sure that's what things that you deal with, with your clients a lot as well. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and kids add a whole new dynamic to it with clients too, because then, you know, there's that part of us as women that is almost sacrificial in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, who am I to deserve these two hours of working without, you know, distractions or worry when I could be a little bit more, you know, you have all these thoughts in your head, whether it's more maternal or more efficient throughout the day or like whatever, it's like all of these thoughts start populating your brain. You're just like, it, it's that overdrive of that really that perfectionism, I feel like is, is the, really the biggest connector of all of it. It's just like, well, I could be everything and more, and I see so-and-so doing it. And I think that we don't really talk a lot about our struggles with the balancing of everything and the timing of everything. And I do think that there is a lot more of the mental load of those types of things that do fall on women. And so, I mean, you're right. It it is one of those things where it's like, am I really going to spend the money on this? And am I worth that? Is it okay for me to have two hours where I do this? And, you know, my mom, you know, maybe your mom or mom, 
uh, parents didn't have that. And so it's just kind of like, well, they were able to do this and I just went to work with them and I'm fine. So sometimes that comes into play too. Absolutely. So let's, let's talk about perfectionism. Let's talk a little bit more about it. I want to dive in because this is something that I have struggled with for a good portion of my life. I became a perfectionist as my way of coping as a kid. And so I was the one that always got the great grades and I had to be, you know, top 5% of my high school class. I had to, I had to, I had certain expectations of myself. Mm -hmm. I'd like to say I'm in recovery right now from being a perfectionist, but I still struggle with it, honestly, on a daily basis. And I set these just incredibly high expectations that I would never put on anybody else, but I put them on myself. And so I'd love your thoughts on that in general, and then maybe some more concrete guidance and tips on how you work with clients to move through that. Yeah. Yeah. Great questions. Perfectionism is probably one of my favorite topics to talk about because when talking about mindset, it's so integrated with mindset. And the first thing I'll say about perfectionism, because some people might tune out when they hear that word, because they're like, oh, I'm not a perfectionist. Perfectionists aren't always the super type A, really organized people that you initially think of. It could also be the person that's really disorganized and struggles to get on top of things. And it's really just whether or not you're maladaptive or adaptive adaptive in the way that you've handled the overwhelm and stress that can be caused by perfectionism. And so one example that I've heard clients give me where they're like, oh, I can't possibly be a perfectionist because I procrastinate all the time. And it's funny because that's actually one, a huge symptom of perfectionism as an example, because with procrastination, you're saying, oh, I'm going to protect my potential. I either create a situation where I run out of time and the reason I fail is because I ran out of time or I, if it's not the, the, the time component, it's that we'll imagine, or if you then do well at something as an example, then you could say, well, imagine if I had more time then I could have done so much better. So in a way it protects your potential because you're looking at procrastination as a way to save your ego a little bit. So I want to say that first, just because some people immediately write off like, oh, I'm just not a perfectionist. It doesn't apply to me, but it can also show up to different parts of your life. It might show up in your career, but not at home, or it could show up in with your friends and in a social environment. And then not when you're coming to home to be creative or something of that nature. So it can pop up in different areas. It's not all or nothing within your lifestyle. Um, And that's honestly the biggest thing with perfectionism too, is that black and white, all or nothing mindset that I see come into play a lot. And so some of the things we were talking about already is I'm either good at this or I'm not, I'm smart or I'm not, I have the ability to do this or I don't. And it's these blanket statements where we don't tend to use the word and it's always, but, or should. And very rarely do we say, and I don't know the skill set and I'm going to do my best to learn it and go through the process of, of becoming an expert in this. Instead, it's always, I'm not good at this, but so I should have someone else come and do this, or I should just go talk to someone who could actually do this for me. Um, so there's, it's interesting how perfectionists kind of frame things too. And it's less about, well, if I'm just not innately born with the skill set, then I'm just never going to be able to do it sort of thing. And so it's almost missing that progress component. And it's very, you become very results oriented. And so you talked about how to get out of that. One thing that I love, and actually Tim Ferriss talked about this in a podcast not long ago, and I was, I'm going to steal his, what he called it, because I called it doing one thing a day that scares you. 
he calls it fear planning, which I love. And the, uh, the whole concept is to figure out things that you're putting off or things that you don't want to do for whatever reason, because you're afraid of what it's going to say about you. So let's take the sales perspective, right? When I first started selling Catco, the first couple of weeks, I was extremely ineffective and not successful with it. And a big part of that was because I had this idea that if I just kept meeting with a bunch of people, that everyone was going to just prove to the world that I couldn't do this. And so I didn't have as many appointments that I was setting when I was going into the appointments. I had this energy about me that was just like, oh God, they're not going to want to buy for me. They're, they want to just kick me out of the house as soon as they can. Like you, when you walk in, people kind of pick up on that immediately. They know whether you're in a good mood or a bad mood. When you're just walking in there, like they're just looking to kick me out. I was communicating a very different message. And so for me, it was having that mindset of, I'm afraid of this and what it might say about me. So I'm almost self-sabotaging in a lot of ways. So that way it's not really me. It's like, I didn't give it a hundred percent. So we withhold our effort in order to make sure that it doesn't say something too catastrophic about us as people. So I like to talk about fear-based planning a lot. And that is what is something that you've been putting off or what is something that you've been withholding your effort with in order to protect a part of yourself. And that could honestly take a couple of weeks to figure out for some people. Some people might come to it immediately. They might say, oh, I've been putting off making that call about this position that I want to apply for. Or I could be making that, I could be putting off that call that I need to make to my mother in order to set that really hard boundary or whatever it is. We put off those things and we keep finding ways to push them down the road. So fear planning is a great way because then you can stop and say, okay, what is, what am I afraid of? Why am I afraid of it? What do I think it says about me? And what are all the reasons that's actually not factually correct? So if you say, well, I'm just not smart enough. Well, what are the reasons? Find all the reasons why that's actually not conceptually true. What are areas in your life where you are smart or where you do feel successful and knowledgeable in certain things? There have to be at least one, two, three areas. And so if you're successful in certain areas, well, then that whole statement, I'm just not smart enough is completely false. And then being able to go back and remind yourself of that over time that, oh no, that, that whole fear is based in opinion and not fact. And I know that what the long-term implication on my life is if I never do that thing. So that's really the next most important thing is if you never do this in your entire life, what does that mean for you in the future? Five years from now, 10 years from now, if you never bite the bullet and do this, you're always going to stay where you are. And are you okay with that? Sometimes the answer might be yes, but for most people, the answer is no, I'm not okay with that. And so then saying, okay, well, if I'm not okay with where I'm going to be in five, 10 even five days from now, if I don't do this thing right now, well, then what are some things that I can do? What is the first step I can take? And sometimes people will take too big of a bite off of that. And they're like, well, I just have to immediately become an expert in this tomorrow. It's like, well, no, let's break that down into a bunch of different steps. What is the first thing you can do? Can you get a book? Can you reach out to someone? Can you at least try to pick up the phone and make an initial call or whatever the case may be? So fear-based planning is something that I love to do a lot of. And I have a whole worksheet that I'll go through with people on that. And that really helps people own what they want and then dig themselves out of the hole of, well, I'm scared to go after it because of what it might say about me. So with perfectionism, I find that fear-based planning is something that is super, super helpful for things. When it comes to the beating yourself down mentally and talking about all the things that you can't do, that really comes down to the limiting belief, the core work part of perfectionism that So for most of us, it's helpful to identify what initially caused the perfectionism or what 
usually it's a time in your life where someone made you feel shame for not being executing 100% perfectly. And it had nothing to do with who you were as a child or as a young person and had everything to do with the person that was observing or viewing had their own ideas about perfectionism and standards that were independent of you. And yet they were put on you and made you feel shame and vulnerability. And then you make a a decision about, I never want to feel this way again. So I'm going to protect myself moving forward. And the only way I can protect myself is if I create this performance of perfection. And what happens is, is when we really lean into that performance aspect, that's what really creates the imposter syndrome because you're always performing and you never actually feel like you are that perfection. You just want the image or the illusion of it. And so when that happens, that's what really creates that imposter syndrome because of course, if you feel like you're performing all the time, then of course you're not actually gonna feel like you're that, that expert because you know in your subconscious or internally that, oh, this is all just a show so that other people think I'm perfect, even though I don't actually feel that way. So that incongruency is what really perpetuates imposter syndrome in women, especially. And women are a little bit more susceptible to it just based on growing up and expectations that are put on females more than our male counterparts growing up. And the school system is a huge part of that. Grades, I mean, the fact that you have a test and you get one grade and you don't have any opportunities to retake that test, that right there creates a fixed mindset, which really leads to perfectionism later down the road. I would love to see school systems be completely revamped where you got opportunities to retake tests and it becomes more about the process and, and growth mindset, but we're just not there yet. So I feel like I kind of went off on like really what all perfectionism is. So I hope I answered your question, but I know I kind of went a lot there. That was amazing. And I don't know if you, I was like furiously taking notes because um, <laughs> everything you just said is me in a nutshell. And I'm in a new job myself and I'm learning things that I haven't learned before. And mm-hmm. I am in that exact same position. I'm putting these expectations on myself that I should know this already. The should, like I am telling myself, I'm not all over ourselves. It's crazy. And it's interesting when you say, you know, like how the, impo- like, I feel like I'm an imposter. I feel all the time. I'm like, these people think that I am smarter than I am. They feel like I am somebody that, that I am, I don't think I am. And it's really fascinating. You said that like incongruence and I, what I think can happen. And I think what's, what, what is, how it's happening for me is it's creating this like identity issue. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Because, because I know who I am, think I know who I am truly, which is that like person that is trying to grow and learn and all this uh, over time. But I'm also trying to play this act that I'm somebody that I'm not. And I'm doing that because of fear, because I want people to, to think a certain way about me. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, when is, when do you just give it up? (laughs) And And you've taken the first step, which is really just noticing that about yourself and knowing that that's something about you. So mindfulness is a huge part of perfectionism because so many people, perfectionists, especially love to not be labeled perfectionists which is so funny. And which is why I wanted to talk about that first, because we have a tendency to be like, oh, well, if I'm a perfectionist then that, that itself could ruin my idea of being perfect to others and that performance that I've cultivated. Because and so it has it's like, a connotation. 
Right. Exactly. And it's like, I don't want to have that negative connotation. And well, surely I do, you know, I have, I procrastinate or I do these other things. Like, of course I'm not a perfectionist, but so being mindful is a huge part because then you get to actively choose your decision-making and you can start, then you become so much more aware of why you're making certain actions or why you're doing certain things. So I have worked with so many women who are, have been very successful in their careers and have amassed wealth for themselves, but at the same time feel like frauds because they feel like they just kept getting lucky. And so they can't own the side of them that actually got them there and recognizing that they got themselves there. And so that disconnect, when you start to peel back all the reasons why they might think that and just becoming aware of like, well, when you look at the facts, and so sometimes I'll have an exercise where you literally just write down from a, a, you step outside of yourself and say, what are all the successful things that I've done? Don't worry about luck or anything, just like what has happened. And really the other thing too, is like with luck, most people have to have a, or have a certain amount of luck, which I attribute to manifestation, but some people it's just luck. And every entrepreneur will tell you that if they were extremely successful in something, there was an element of luck to that. And so it's like, but as women, we have a tendency to think that luck is not okay, or luck doesn't play into our ability as, or our success, or it doesn't mean anything about us as successful people. Whereas men, our, our male counterparts anyway, tend to tie in their lucky coincidences as a part of their luck and we disassociate from it. And I think a part of that too, just, it, it does go into that manifestation mindset. And so talking about manifestation, it's like, it's okay for some of that to still be your success. And in a way it's, it's that identity part. It's you did all the right things in order for that opportunity to present itself, but you had to do all the right things in order for that to even be an option for you. And you might say it's luck that that job opportunity came up that gave you that pay increase. But at the same time, it's like, but you were doing all the right things and cultivating this identity of who you are that allowed that opportunity to make sense for the person that was presenting it to you. And it's like, oh, well, I was just lucky I fell into it. It's like, no, you created the life that allowed that to come. And so I think that sometimes too, we'll talk about perfectionism and be like, well, you know, I, I'm not successful because I, I got lucky all these times and when it comes to perfectionism, it's like, we want to, to almost, it's funny because we, we have that shaming side and we have that like, oh, I'm good at this, but I'm not good at that. I was lucky here. And, and we have a tendency to keep raising the bar on ourselves too. So we'll say, oh, when I hit $10,000, I'll consider myself in my savings, I'll consider myself successful. And then you hit 10, you're like, well, just kidding. I was really meaning 20. And then you get to 20, you're like, well, it's really needs to be more like a hundred. So then you never even allow yourself to celebrate those successes because you keep increasing the bar up on yourself and perfectionists love to do that because it's almost like once you get there you have this idea that you might all of a sudden no longer want to work hard which is this really interesting dichotomy so just knowing and being aware of your tendencies is the best way to start mitigating them because as things happen you get to say okay wait hold on I'm really leaning into this imposter syndrome right now and I need to cut it out because I've realized that that's not something that I want to continue to come up in my life so I'm going to choose a different thought now, and I'm going to choose a different way of thinking about this. And so I love talking about neuroplasticity because you can actually train your brain over time to have a, a, a positive default setting. And a lot of us are really set into that negative default setting where something happens immediately, we might be excited, but then we immediately start talking ourselves down and about all the reasons why we actually didn't deserve that or why we actually didn't work for it ourselves. As opposed to if you have that positive default, then you ha something happens, you get really excited and you're just like, I, 
I have deserved this. I am worthy of this. I'm so excited this happened for me. I'm glad that I was able to create this for myself. And it's just like two very different neural pathways. And most of us as women were taught to be humble and to be sweet and to be modest. And so that neural, that negative neural pathway is so ingrained in us. And we just have to start consciously making different decisions and stopping those thoughts when they happen so that we stop making that neural pathway deeper and deeper in our brain. And we start transitioning to a more positive pathway. And we just keep practicing that until that pathway in the brain becomes deeper and deeper. And that becomes the default. So there's a big part of mindset that comes into it. Awareness is a huge part. Um, The fear-based planning is a huge part. And then another one I would say for perfectionists, if, if anyone's looking for some actionable tips to do today is to never do a to-do list again in your life ever to-do list for, for perfectionists, work. huh? Even for work, even for work, because to-do lists with perfectionists, if you ever look at the to-do list and you look at that list, you're like, there's no way this could all possibly be done in one day. And yet we have a tendency to put all of that on there and they can get us really overwhelmed. And then we look at all those things and then we judge ourselves. If we don't check off every single thing on that list, at the end of the day, we're just like, God, I had such a bad day. I didn't get those three things that weren't feasibly possible to do today done. And then we start beating ourselves up over something that we weren't able to accomplish. And then what does it say about us? So for perfectionists, to-do lists, not great because it's not always based in reality. Instead, time block. And that's so... You know, I have a couple of documents I need to get out for a client. How long does that normally take me? Okay, I'm going to time block that. And when you start time blocking in your schedule, as opposed to a to-do list, you'll still start being a lot more realistic about how much time things actually take because perfectionists love to think they can cram so many things into a very small amount of time. It's why perfectionists also usually run late to things or can, you know, not all of this is black and white, but... (laughs) No, it's spot on. It's so spot on. And I just want to reiterate something you had said earlier. I mean, this is why perfectionists also can't accept compliments. I Mm -hmm. have struggled with that my whole life. You know, someone's like, I like your hair today, or I like your shoes. I'm like, thanks. I mean, whatever, (laughs) you know, you just brush it off. I mean, but you can't actually, this is, and I, I did a whole episode a while ago on the podcast about the concept of receiving. Mm -hmm. I mean, you cannot fully appreciate something if you have, if you are struggling to receive it, like you, you just can't, like, you're going to just brush it off. It's not going to have any meaning to, to you whatsoever, unless you can actually say, yep. Okay. I do deserve that compliment. My hair does look really nice today, but it's just amazing how much, how as a culture and as females, we just brush it off. Like it's nothing, Mm -hmm. you know, and then The other thing I was going to add to what you just said too, is like, we continue to set these, the bar higher and higher and higher. And we Mm -hmm. don't take time to, to appreciate along the way, um, what we have done. And a good example of that is, you know, I started running after college and it was when I met my husband, my now husband, we were dating and he was always a runner. I was not, I was not really that athletic as a kid. And he, he would just, you know, we'd be hanging out and he's like, would you, I want to go for a run. And I'm like, all right, well, I guess I'll go home. I don't know. Right. So, <laughs> so I'm like, I started running so I could just hang out with him more. And so the, he was totally fine, very content, just, you know, running a couple of miles just to, for kind of maintenance, just to feel good about himself and get those endorphins going. And when I started running, I was like, okay, I like this. 
now I want to do more. Now I want to do more. Now I want to do more. So I would start with the, you know, okay, I'm going to run. Now I want to do a 5k. Now I want to do five mile race. Then I want to do a 10 mile race. Then my next thing was a half marathon. And then after the half, I did a couple half marathons. I was like, I want to do a marathon. And I remember telling myself at the time, like, if I can do this, if I can run this marathon, I can do anything. And I ended up doing it. I mean, I ran the marathon, but did I stop and like give myself that, that just the time to appreciate that and to Mm -hmm. just kind of like, just revel in it. Right. To just, to just enjoy, like, look what I just did. No, I never did. And then I immediately was like, I'm going to do another one. I want to be my time. It's just this competitive nature that I have with myself. And, you know, and I ended up doing three of them and I still am like, okay, I still, I still don't think, and it's been a while, this was pre-kids and everything, but I, but I feel like years later, I'm just like, I never really stopped to think about how much of an accomplishment that was. And you think about all these, it's, it goes, that's just one example in running, but it was all these other accomplishments that we make along the way in our careers and in different, different life challenges and stuff, things that you've made through. And you never really, we just, as a culture, we are not trained to stop, slow down and actually like give yourself a pat on the back for what you've been through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would say too, that women are still more harshly judged for doing that as well. So, you know, I see male coworkers patting each other on the back all the time for their successes. And when a woman, woman jumps up with the same sort of excitement, it's kind of like, Oh, she was you know, look at her getting really full of herself over there. And it's like, we need to change that too. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly the expectations, uh, the cultural expectations, male versus female. I think that's, that come into play and how we've been trained again, you mentioned it to stay humble and to just sort of like, yeah, okay. That was nothing. Instead of, you know, a a typical male response would be a lot more, a lot more, I don't want to say self-serving, but just, it would just be a lot different. That's for sure. So That's why we have to encourage our friends too, to, to own their stuff. Like there are so many friends now that I'm trying to be better about reminding them I'm like, no, own that success. That's awesome. Let's go celebrate. Let's sit in this for a second and let you feel your success. Let's not just move on to the next thing, like forcing them to do that. And then what's funny is I'm trying to be so mindful about doing it for others that those same friends have now done it for me when mm-hmm. I have a tendency to brush past my own successes. And so I think that as women, that's a huge way that we can cultivate that change amongst our, ourselves too, is just be mindful for those friends. And then they'll also be mindful toward you right back. And then it kind of helps end that cycle of not owning your worth too. Well, and also competition. Do you find mm-hmm. sometimes that with women, there is a lot of unspoken competition with each other? I, I feel like this is what I want to change in the world, but I do feel like there's an aspect of like, well, this person's doing this, this person has gotten so far in their life and look at me, I haven't done that yet. Or do you see that with your clients? I see it happen internally a lot, for sure. Less of the external aggressive competition, but definitely a lot of that internal like comparison Mm -hmm. and that, oh, well, she's so far and successful and I'm only over here. Like, shit, what did I do wrong? Or I've had a client recently tell me, they're like, well, I started my own business, but I'm really disappointed because this other person just like took off. And I feel like we started around the same time. And when I dug into it after our session together and and found the person she was talking to, I was like, no, she had that business for like five years before you did. And she just only just now started 
having certain success. But the problem is, is that you didn't notice it until she started getting very successful. And so you're just comparing yourself to the highlight reel of her success. And I think that with social media, we've definitely leaned into that a bit more. And I think that that does start to sort of go away a bit once you start becoming more comfortable with your process and your, with where you are and and when you start getting more comfortable with where you're going. So I think that when you start to do a lot of the mindset work, that kind of works itself out more naturally in time. And for people that are really hyper competitive that I've come across, even in my industry that are women, it's usually one of those things where it's just like, you know, they're in a different place right now. And either one day, and so again, it kind of goes back to whether it's like the aggressive or the, the internal, uh, but if it is that aggressive, it's usually says more about where they're at mentally and less about myself. And so I used to be a very competitive person and now I've really stepped back from that. And I'm like, no, this is, we're all in this together. I want to see everyone be successful. And I think that's one thing I've loved about manifestation is having this belief that there is enough for all of us. And whereas previously I was coming from that scarcity mindset of like, oh no, if it's not mine, it's going to be hers. And I think that's what the generations that came before us, um, that's one thing my mentor was very vocal with me about because she experienced this firsthand. It used to be, there's only room for one table, one woman at the table and it's going to be me. So you better get, you know, you better get out because I'm going to win that seat and there's only one. Whereas now I think we're stepping into this area where we're starting to realize that no, we can all be here there's enough room for all of us and it's that abundance. And so I really love that manifestation helps me with that women empowerment side too. <laughs> yeah, so fascinating. Like to finally recognize that there is enough to go around. It's not that there has to be, you have to kind of elbow your way up to the top and that's it. And it, you can only one person can have all this success. I'm working on doing an episode on success and I would love to just hear your thoughts on that. Like what, what do you define as success and how do you work? What would you advise clients on when they come to you about that specifically? Yeah. Well, so the way I define success for me personally would be that I'm having all of my needs met abundantly from the spiritual, the wealth, the mindset and the relationship part of my life, all of those and health, all of those things are good. They're in alignment. They're all moving together in the right direction. And I'm not having that pull of balance. I'm not feeling like I have to take from one bucket and put in another. So for me, that's the idea of success is just really achieving that autonomy. And I think finance does play a huge role in that because when you have a certain level of wealth, you can better balance things out a little bit more. But it's really reaching that level where you can make more meaningful intentions and decisions for your life that allow that wheel to be more or less equal and revolving around, you know, the, the, the life goals that my partner and I have put in place for each other and allow us to, to do the things that we've always talked about doing without concern or without wondering how we're going to get there. So that's my idea of success. Um, I think money plays a part of it just because of the physical world we live in and money is required to do certain things. For all of clients, when they ask me about, I've had a lot of people come and say, well, I just want to be successful and I want you to help me be successful. Well, really defining, well, what does success look like for you? Because it's different for all of us. For some people, success is defined as I want to be able to go buy a house in Bali and just live there for the rest of my life. And I don't care if I make 50 bucks a week after that. 
Um, for some people, it might be, I want to have my own company that's extremely successful and I want to have millions of followers. For other people, it might, you know, it's just, it's so different for each person. So really defining like, well, what does success actually look like? And realizing that someone else's success that they want for themselves does not have to determine what you want for yourself. And so I had a coworker um, at one point ask me about successfully negotiating a salary as an example. And so I asked her, I was like, well, what do you inevitably want from this? Like, what would your successful outcome be? And it had nothing to do with the finance part of it. She was like, well, I want, and this was pre-COVID, I want more of an ability to, to have more autonomy in my day-to-day structure, but my position doesn't really lend itself to that. And so when you ask her about that idea for a successful position, well, for her, if autonomy is the biggest thing, the financial component really isn't going to do a whole lot for that autonomy other than allow her to do some more things in her personal life. Well, then what she really wanted was she wanted more Fridays off or she wanted to be able to work from home half a week. Again, pre-COVID, this is a little bit less heard of. Mm-hmm. And so from that perspective, when she defined success for her within that, with that particular item, it was having that autonomy. Okay, well, then go back to the negotiation table with that and maybe don't approach the salary conversation instead approach this I want to be able to work remotely or have this hybrid setup for myself and then when she did that and she now only had to go to the office two times a week she was thrilled she's like I feel so great I feel way better than I would have if I were able to get ten thousand more dollars added to my salary and it's like okay well for her that was more meaningful and that's what she identified as success for someone else they might have wanted that ten thousand dollars and they didn't care if they had to come in every day to get it so really just defining what that actually is for you. And really, I I love visualization exercises because it can help you define for you what success actually looks like. And when you're clear, if we know anything about goals and objectives, when you're clear on what you want, it actually helps you get there. Same thing from a manifestation perspective. You have to actually know what you want. And so I think defining success is critical for anyone that because otherwise you just feel lost and how are you going to know when to success, to celebrate certain successes if you don't even know what that would be for yourself. Right. And once you kind of define that, you can start planting those seeds today to mm-hmm. little teeny baby steps along the way. It's really interesting. I think when you say the word success, it's so, lo- it's such a loaded word because mm-hmm. as culture, you know, we look at movies and TV shows and things and it just shows, it defines it in our minds as like dollars and notoriety, right? And mm-hmm. we don't, I don't think we, anybody really takes the time or, you know, not that many people take the time to realize that it is such a personal thing. I mean, mm-hmm. it is so, it's so vulnerable to yeah. actually put out there in the world, what that, what that means to you, to not only know what it is, but to actually like write it down and visualize it, like you said, or maybe tell somebody else about it. That can be a little scary because, you know, again, I think mindset stuff, we don't really, we often limit ourselves and our abilities and we don't think that we can get there. But when you put that out there, it's almost like eye opening. like, wow, I didn't even know I wanted that. Yeah. Yeah. And it can be scary. You put that out there in the world, then some of that perfectionism can come in. You're like, well, what if I don't hit it? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I know. And then it's when the cycle starts again. (laughs) Um, So as we start to wrap up, I ask this of all of my guests, if you could leave the audience with one piece of advice, what would it be? Hmm. One piece of advice. This is something that just keeps coming up for me lately. So this is what I'm going to lean into, even though we didn't really get into it on this show. And that is when you're, I think we have a tendency to want to do a lot as women. I'm going to work on my mindset. I'm going to 
do the visualization and do, you know, maybe meditation or any of these things. I'm going to read the books, listen to the audiobooks, listen to the podcasts. You know, we're constantly doing, we're doing a lot for, for most of us. And I think that it's important as we grow that we start to step more into the being and less of the doing. And am I feeling happy every day? Am I able to step into that parasympathetic system and really just be content, happy, at peace? Or how much of me is always in the doing, the chaos, the sympathetic nervous system? So I think that's going to be what I would leave everyone off on because I think the more women that could really just step into like the being of like, am I happy? Am I feeling good? Is going to allow you to connect to all the other things that are going to help you define your success, own your worth, work on this manifestation component. I think that's honestly probably the foundation of a lot of this stuff. And that whole wheel I talked about with thoughts, emotions, behaviors, if you sit more into like the being of who you are and being happy, then all of those things kind of work themselves out. So I love it. That's awesome. Thank you. And you're right. I mean, it's, it's so foundational and I think that's a good place as we wrap up this conversation for listeners to really pick up on their own personal journeys, their own work from there. So I think that's awesome. Thank you. So Brie, please tell everybody how they can find you and follow the work that you're doing in the world. And I know you have your own podcast, so please talk all about yourself. (laughs) Absolutely. You can find my podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. It's Modern Manifestation. You can also find me at Instagram, same thing, at Modern Manifestation. Facebook, same thing. My website is www.the, with T-H-E, Modern Manifestation. And that's where you can stay up to date with me on when I'm able to accept more clients, um, when I have new blog posts and podcast episodes like that, things like that coming out. And also other things that I'm working on will be posted on that site. Um, and then whenever I'm able to, to take on more clients as well, I'll put an announcement on the website to let people know. So if they're interested in working with me, they can check back in and, and, and know when that opens back up. Awesome. Thank you so much, Bri. It's been so fun talking to you. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. <laughs>